This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its second season. In our first year, we produced 14 episodes on a variety of what we hope were timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, we hope to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what you think we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. On Thursday, June 24, 2021, at about 1.25 a.m., Champlain Towers South a 12-story residential condominium in the Miami suburb of Surfside, Florida, collapsed, killing 98 people. The incident is one of the greatest losses of life caused by a construction failure in the history of the United States. Indeed, it is a significant and sobering event for all involved in the construction industry. Here at the podcast, we wanted to learn more about what happened at Champlain Towers and why. Our investigation led us to a review of the extensive news coverage and attempt to talk to the lawyers and others involved with this disaster. Not surprisingly, we quickly learned that because of the numerous lawsuits filed and the wide ranging litigation currently underway, those involved simply could not talk with us. So we took another approach. According to the engineering news record, The building met all building codes in effect in 1979 when the construction was completed. And at the time of the collapse, the condominium had just begun a 40-year building recertification program required by Miami-Dade County. But still, the building failed. This raises the question of how do building codes and their enforcement work to make buildings safe? And do they, in fact, accomplish that goal? To consider that question, we're very lucky to have with us today Linda Pizinski, a noted lawyer, consultant, instructor, and author in the field of building code enforcement. Linda, thanks for being here, and let's begin with you telling us a little bit about your background. Thank you for having me today. John, I started as an assistant state's attorney in uh, DuPage County, Illinois, which is just west of Chicago, doing things like murders and armed robberies and retail thefts and all the really juicy kind of cases. And uh, when I had to leave the office because my boss lost the election, I became a municipal prosecutor, started off with five clients and eventually ended up with over 10 during my career. And as part of what I did, in addition to doing traffic tickets, and uh, kids drinking underage, I had to prosecute building code enforcement cases. And so that that became my education, the courtroom, in dealing with building inspectors on how the codes worked. And so that's 
that's what my background is. And then I started to write also books about building code enforcement for inspectors and officials. I know you told me earlier about something called the International Code Council and your work with that organization. What's that? The International Code Council is the organization that promulgates model codes that most states and many municipalities adopt as their building code. They promulgate many, many different kinds of code beside the building code, fire code, residential code, the mechanical codes, green energy codes, things like that. And what they do is it's a membership organization and they get together every few years to make updates for the law in terms of trying to improve safety. And then they adopt those and then they publish the, like right now, I think they're developing uh, new, new codes that will be out in a little bit, but it's an ongoing process. It's like a three-year cycle right now where they issue these new codes and updates, always adding things when there are newer techniques that make buildings safer. Linda, what was the first thing that you thought about when the Champlain Towers collapse occurred? Well, aside from the horror at realizing how many people lost their lives because of it, I started to think that this is going to be something I'm going to be teaching probably for the rest of my life in terms of the problems that must have been in that building for it to collapse. I mean, buildings just don't fall down like that. There's probably a lot of causes that have yet to be determined, but I knew that building code violations was going to be at the top of the list. Well, what were the kinds of issues when you heard the news reports that caught your attention? Well, yeah, I started to read all the every article I could find about it because I'm just interested in the in this subject. But a number of things came uh, came about, and some of this is somewhat speculation at this point because we don't have any definitive answers. But there were definitely during this 40 year certification process, they had hired an engineer. And the report came back that there were a number of issues involved with the foundation and the pool area. And the problem was, of course, it was going to cost a lot of money to fix. The board is pressured by the owners who don't want to come up with all these special assessments. And so the work was delayed. I think a lot of people did not realize how urgent it was you know, people always, when it comes to money, people look at the the trade-offs, you know, safety versus cost. And the costs were going to be, I read with the special assessments, were going to be in, you know, maybe five figures, which is for a condo unit, that's ridiculous. Now, looking back, they're saying that some of the design was probably flawed from the beginning. There were columns that were too narrow, apparently. The New York Times did a lengthy article about it. The concrete was deteriorating, and that often happens when you have rebar. I don't know if it was properly coated or not to avoid rust, but that can weaken foundations and so forth. Water wasn't draining away from the building properly, I guess, from the beginning. And uh, the New York Times said that there were also city officials at the time this was built that accepted campaign contributions for the project to help it along, so to speak. So Who knows what kind of pressure there was on inspectors by politicians to approve things in a quick way. I often see this in the towns that I prosecuted for, where a mayor wants something and the officials don't quite know what to do because they know maybe it's not exactly the right thing, but yet they're going to lose their job if they don't. 
In addition, I was reading that there were grand juries that were convened in the 80s and 90s in Florida because of shoddy inspections by city inspectors. So anytime that you have large cities, there's always that possibility for that to creep in. Well, let's move from that specific and very terrible disaster to the broader field of code enforcement. One of the words that you used when you were describing the background of this collapse was the word urgency, and that caught my attention. How do people involved in code enforcement communicate the urgency of some of these matters? Well, the quickest way to show the urgency is to issue an order of condemnation. If it's that unsafe, building inspectors have the power to notify the owner and the residents that the building is going to be condemned unless certain repairs are made in a set period of time. And if it's that dangerous, they can even skip that step and go straight to placarding the building if it is an emergency. Now, the problem, of course, is I don't know that anyone involved in this foresaw how terrible this was going to be. Certainly, if they had the forethought to think that something like this could happen, I'm sure people would have acted. But unfortunately, we don't think in those terms until something like this happens. And then every building and their brother gets inspected to see if there are similar problems, which is what's happening right now. What's the lawyer's role? And in particular, for example, the lawyers who do the kind of work that you did in your career. When I would get a case in court, what happens is the building official or inspector sees a problem, sends a notice to the uh, owner or the tenant, depending on what the code says, to rectify the situation, come into compliance. But if they don't come into compliance, then normally a complaint or a ticket is given to the owner and they have to come to court. And that's when I step in. Now, sometimes I give advice beforehand to see if they have enough evidence to proceed, you know, if they have probable cause to give them some guidance if they need to issue an administrative search warrant. But my role in court is to present the facts to the judge to try to get a uh, finding of guilty so that we can move on to the step of forcing compliance with the law. I'm interested in your comments with regard to convincing courts. Now, the role that a lot of construction lawyers find themselves in, in trying cases, is that of an educator, in a sense, to the court. And we often use expert witnesses to do so. Tell us a little bit about how enforcement people teach courts about the violations and the risks. You've hit on an absolutely important point. Uh, In my career, I might have a judge appear in front of that judge for six months before they go on to a different court. And so it's a revolving door. We hear cases in the, uh, in the traffic courts. They were included in the call. And so my job, I thought, was to educate the judge. And so I would just have general conversations, not about cases, but just in terms of building codes and things like that. If you were lucky, you got somebody who did this kind of work in the state's attorney's office in the civil division, but that wasn't very often. So what I, I would do with my witnesses who are usually very well qualified, who have taken lots of certification tests to get the jobs that they have, and that they would explain why something was important from a safety reason. Because a lot of times judges had no idea why you needed to change a a pipe 
if you replaced a bathtub with a shower, for example, which I had in one case. And so we would educate the judge under the reason why to show that this is a rational reason that we have these ordinances, as they're called at the local level. And so these ordinances, each of them came into being really because it, there was a safety issue involved, whether it's painting your windowsills, because you're trying to avoid the windowsills from getting rotten, which can eventually impact the st- structure of the building. So it, it, small things become big things if you don't take care of them. Well, let me change the focus just so slightly. So, of course, part of the lawyer's role is educating the court and prosecuting the claim, but you also have to deal with the owners of the buildings, and in particular, often HOAs. Tell me a little bit about that part of the lawyering involved. Well, a lot is negotiation, all right? I mean, people come in and they don't think they have to do anything. And then you explain to them that if they don't, they can be fined every day that the violation exists, which is going to cost them money. For most people, that's a big motivator. Sometimes with homeowner associations or condo associations, they're very unskilled in this area. And sometimes there's not even a condo association that exists because it's been allowed to be dissolved over time. And we have then strongly suggested that the uh, most responsible owners get together and form one so that we don't have to go after each and every individual owner in a condo, which can be quite complicated. I've never really had to do that. I've had to threaten to do it. But usually you can work with the condo association because normally they're represented by a lawyer. And you just explain to the lawyer, look, here's what the declaration says about what your responsibility is versus the owners. This needs to be fixed. Come up with a plan. We don't want to fine you every day. We just want an agreement. And that's reasonable that this problem get fixed in in a timely fashion. We'll be back with more Construction Law Today in just a moment. FTI Consulting is a leading global provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. As the construction industry navigates the short and long-term impact of the pandemic, FTI Consulting is committed to continuing our longtime support of the ABA Forum on Construction Law and its members. Meet our experts at fticonsulting.com. Welcome back to Construction Law Today. Our guest is Linda Pysinski. She's a lawyer, consultant, instructor, and author relating to building codes and building code enforcement. Linda, before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the consequences of building code violation and the enforcement process. Let's now just spend a minute to go back in time. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of building codes and and how they got their start and how they became such a ubiquitous part of the construction world. Well, the first building code that we know of was on clay tablets found in uh, ancient Iraq. 
And it was actually a building code that said that if you build a building and it kills the owner because it collapses, you get put to death. That seems like a fairly steep penalty to me. It did, but it was when building codes really had teeth (laughs) in terms of enforcement. Probably the enforcement process was different in those days. I know one of the things you you were telling me when we talked earlier is a little bit about the insurance industry and its involvement in the creation of codes. Right, exactly. Uh, Insurance companies are the ones that really pressed for these model codes to be uh, created because they were losing so much money because of fire, especially we, we just celebrated the 150th anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire, where most of the important area of Chicago burned down. Well, if you go there now, you'll see that most of the buildings are stone or brick. And that's because there were laws that were passed about how you could rebuild because of that. But the first model code that an insurance company pressed for was the Uniform Building Code, that that was passed in about 1905. And they urged uh, various states to adopt this as their own code. And so that was mainly focused in the West and the Midwest. The Boca Code, the Building Officials Code, that was mainly in the Northeast. Uh, that's who I started teaching for before ICC merged with these codes. And then there was the Southern Building Code. But in 2000, these three groups merged together. And that's when the International Code Council came into being. And that's the organization then that promulgates most of the codes, except electrical codes. That comes from the National Fire Protection Agency. Most states adopt the NEC. Well, now you're getting very near and dear to my heart as a construction practitioner, I I used to often be confused by which code applies when and where. Can you offer us a little general education on that question? Well, for new construction, the International Building Code applies to commercial buildings or anything that's bigger than townhouses, whereas the Residential Code normally applies to new residents and one or two story townhouses. And then you have the International Property Maintenance Code that applies to existing buildings, which is so important. And and that was the code I used most in court because most of the time we were dealing with existing buildings that had problems. And then of course you have separate codes that deal with how do you construct, you know, the electrical system and the mechanical system and the plumbing system. I was telling you when when you and I first met that I was involved in a case involving whether a building required a sprinkler system. Tell me a little bit about the evolution of the requirements of sprinklers. Well, what, what happens is that technology moves quicker than the law does. It always has. And so you would have these new fandangled things like sprinklers, and it took a while for the model codes to basically say that especially in uh, commercial buildings of a certain size with a certain amount of uh, occupants, you have to have a building sprinkled. And many of us probably go to old hotels and realize that they're not sprinkled because they didn't have to be. There's even provisions in the residential code that single family residences need sprinklers, but usually that's adopted or amended out by many municipalities because people complain about the cost of it. So what happens is over time, codes get amended as safer techniques are discovered, things that will stop a fire from spreading quicker, 
different kinds of materials. And so that's why there's a three-year cycle for these codes to be upgraded, basically. And so I've been through many codes during my careers. And every time I got a new one, there were new, new provisions that increase safety, but then, of course, also increase cost. So there's always this fight between developers and realtors and municipalities who want to assure that there's the buildings have minimum safety standards, because these are just minimum safety standards that the codes impose. It's it's just a you know it's the basic bottom of safety you could say. So there's no guarantee that these buildings are going to be safe forever. Linda, explain if you can, and this may be a little more involved than is appropriate for our discussion, but what are the jurisdictional boundaries of code? Sometimes they're city-based, sometimes they're county, sometimes they're state. How does that regime work? Well, it depends on the state because some states have a state building code that they allow local municipalities to adopt and counties as long, and they can do that and enforce that code as long as they don't weaken the code with amendments. If you're in a state like I'm in, Illinois, we have no state building code. That's kind of a rarity. And so it's every town for itself. So the back end of my car used to have all different versions of the various codes. And I would have to check to see, okay, it's Tuesday. So I get the 2006 property maintenance code to to prosecute. But other, other states, especially like Ohio and Minnesota, I've noticed in teaching, are very regimented in terms of enforcing the code from the state on down. So it, it's still incumbent upon the lawyer involved to, through whatever research is necessary, to figure out which code applies. Oh, absolutely. And if you're uh, representing someone in a civil case, you need to know what the code was at the time that the accident occurred. It may have changed. And so what you may find in the new version isn't applicable to what was in force on the day in question. Speaking of change, talk to me a little bit about the future of codes. And one thing I'm sure everybody is sensitive to are things like green building codes. Right. There's special energy codes because of that, that ICC has promulgated. I think just like anything else, when you have disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, it causes the codes to change for the better, for greater safety. And now that we've got these floods that occur almost every year that used to be 100-year floods, well, the code wasn't written for those kinds of floods or earthquakes or whatever, but especially with with climate change, which probably played a a role in the Champlain disaster, the infiltration of seawater. The codes are trying to deal with those, but since they only get upgraded every three years, it takes time to react and to find out what's going to work to try to prevent these things because these buildings were not built to withstand what's going on now in our environment. And that's a real challenge for building inspectors and contractors in terms of how can we make sure that these tragedies don't happen again. And you see this also with fire prevention, with all these forest fires. We know a lot about how to build buildings so that they're fire retardant, but it's going to increase the cost. And like you said, if there's insurance companies that only want to pay a set amount to rebuild these things, where are the funds going to come from in order to make sure that they're safer? 
There's no guarantees, but we can make buildings safer. I'm curious, in, in connection with what you see evolving in the industry, do you see more jurisdictional authorities focusing on green construction, not just for the resiliency aspect, but also for the energy savings part of it? Oh, absolutely. Green energy has become a huge, a huge thing. And there's lots of continuing education programs for building inspectors to take to make sure that they're up to date on the latest type of construction. When you go to one of these conferences, of course, right now with COVID, that's <laughs> everything's been remote, but you would see all kinds of vendors displaying different uh, ways to make buildings safer for fire protection. You see a lot of enforcement of stormwater management. I used to get involved in cases where I had to prosecute people for like building a gazebo without a stormwater management permit. That's the big problem is a lot of people don't realize the kinds of things that they do that need permits. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the industry discourage people. I, I had to get a new air conditioning unit and I knew I needed a permit, but I said to the salesman, so do I need a permit for this? And he said, well, you know, a lot of people really don't uh, want strangers in their house. And I said, um, I used to be the prosecutor for this town. So I'll call up the building commissioner and, and see what I need to do. He was hey. not happy. <laughs> and I'm told it's quite common. I'm certainly glad that was your answer. Linda, before we go, let's leave some of these general questions. And I want let's turn back to the Champlain Towers for just a minute. In my opening comments, I cited an article from the Engineering News Record that talked about the fact that this building was in compliance with applicable codes when the construction was completed. Talk about, if you will, the limitations of code. And to be frank with you, why did the fact that this building was built to code not prevent that disaster? Well, I think I alluded to that in my earlier remarks. First of all, it was built to minimum code standards. Building officials don't guarantee that your building is absolutely perfectly safe because they can't. They have too much to do that they're not architects, they're not engineers. They have to rely on other people who build buildings. And remember, somebody was always the last person in their class. And so human beings are fallible. And so these are the problems that you have with older buildings is that I mean, when you look at it, it was built in, you said in the late 70s, I think. I think it was completed in 1979 is my recollection. Okay. So look how many code cycles have occurred since then, every three years to upgrade safety measures. And then again, I think nobody anticipated the climate change that was going to occur down in Florida that is causing all this erosion and infiltration. And the other thing is, is that a lot of beautiful buildings have beautiful finishes, but the minimum standards for the really important stuff, plumbing, the foundation, if there's going to be a um, trade-off in terms of money spent, it's going to be a real struggle between the people that want everything to look beautiful and really developing the infrastructure of a building. And you can do it on the cheap and pass the building code for minimum standards today but that doesn't mean 40 years in the future, it's going to be in the same condition it was, especially if there's a lack of maintenance. And I think that's the problem with a lot of these condo associations is they don't spend the money on getting 
the reports they need every year to know how much reserves to have so that the money's there to fix these things when they happen. And I've seen this all the time. And that's what I thought my job was, to catch little things so they don't become bigger things 10 years from now. And I saw what happened to some of those buildings. Our guest today has been Linda Pizinski. Our subject has been the important field of building code enforcement. Linda, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Anytime. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.